Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This week, Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, makes his long overdue return to the green room, a place where sustainability and business professionals uh, can uh, kick back and discuss their passions, beliefs, uh, and how these are shaping uh, corporate sustainability and responsibility uh, in light of the net zero movement. Today, uh, I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, Lord Gregory Barker. Um, many ED regulars will be familiar with Lord Barker as the former UK Minister of uh, State for Energy and Climate Change, uh, who worked within the now abolished Department of Energy and Climate Change uh, DEC. Um, however, it's fair to say that a lot has changed uh, since uh, the days of DEC, both at a government level and indeed for uh, Lord Barker and your current role. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Matt. I'm really pleased to be here. Great. And yeah, um, as mentioned, a, a lot has changed uh, since since the deck days. And you find yourself, uh, I think it's fair to say, in quite an interesting uh, role right now at uh, M Plus Group. But it's probably better if it comes from you to explain um, what it is you're, you're up to there. Yes. Well, I'm now the executive chairman. So I joined uh, this group um, in 2017 uh, as a non-exec chairman when it floated on the London Stock Exchange. And it was the biggest float of the year the largest foreign float for several years. Um, and there was a connection because before I, I went to um, into politics in 2001, I'd actually uh, lived in Russia and worked in the energy sector. Um, although when I left politics in uh, 2015, I didn't anticipate um, returning um, to that geography. But I was um, blown away by this particular opportunity or this particular group. The reason being, it is a huge clean energy business um, with the most amazing potential. Huge, it's because it's the world's largest private sector hydro business. So it has, we have about 16 and a half gigawatts of hydro, clean electricity generated from Lake Baikal. And to put that in some sort of context, 16 and a half gigawatts is massive for any energy business it's huge for clean energy it's about it's more than all of britain's nuclear reactors put together so it's a really big uh, electricity business but they don't just use that to support the grid um, in the regions where we operate we also use about 70 percent of that clean electricity to create aluminium which is a very energy intensive um, process to make. And most aluminium around the world um, has very sustainable applications, but is actually uh, very polluting to make. The reason being is about 70% of aluminium is made using coal-fired electricity, the majority of that in China. So typically to make one tonne of aluminium, you're talking about 16 and a half tonnes or more of of uh, carbon to create that one tonne of metal. Uh, whereas because we use um, a clean energy input to make our aluminium, instead of being 16 and a half, it is uh, just over two and a half. So two and a half versus 16 and a half is a phenomenal difference. And obviously we're now working very hard on a plan to try and drive that down substantially further. And aluminium was not a metal that I was particularly familiar with when I um, uh, came across this group or when they approached me. Obviously, I was familiar with, you know, a Coke can or aluminium foil, but I had no appreciation of just the huge number of 
sustainable uses to which aluminium is increasingly put. Firstly, it's incredibly recyclable. There's a really extraordinary statistic about 70% of all the aluminium that's ever been produced in the modern industrial era is still in circulation. So really aluminium is a sort of founding member of the circular economy, um, but there's a, a huge potential to recycle a lot more. And then the applications now um, it for aluminium really do underpin the transformation to a low carbon economy. So because it's so light and adaptable, um, it basically, anything you want to super lightweight um, is ideal for aluminium, particularly uh, um, automotive. So the reason that we can be so confident about the rollout of electric vehicles is because electric motors um, can go very fast, but they, they struggle when you've got great weight. But if you swap out steel um, for, uh, for aluminium, suddenly you get great um, mobility options. So electric vehicles are huge users of aluminium, um, as is um, sustainable packaging, that recyclable coke can. We're now what we call aluminium packaging 2.0 that's replacing a lot of plastics, particularly um, single use plastics. Um, it's also um, has great um, conductivity qu uh, qualities. So it's used to both transmit uh, electricity and we're going to electrify the global economy if we're going to meet those Paris goals. It's also used in the building of renewable energy infrastructure. So anything from a wind turbine to a solar panel, I think about over 75% of a solar panel in total is made up of aluminium, obviously not the actual cells, but the, the infrastructure that it stands on is primarily aluminium. Um, and it's it has great thermal properties as well. So it's also used in uh, in buildings, sustainable buildings. So um, there are so many uses and I you know couldn't turn up the opportunity to help make this into a really global force for good, um, as well as being a very exciting business proposition. Yeah, I mean, you, you summarise it really well. It's, it's it's an interesting business in the sense that it kind of has so many touch points across the whole sustainability spectrum, whether it is uh, uh, material and tech economy, the EV revolution, the the green energy aspect, and, and essentially the interesting aspect about it is it's a it's a carbon intensive manufacturing industry that's greening itself up. It, it's it's a really fascinating project, and obviously, you, it's not just the proponents of um, of, of the material itself, uh, it's been quite a busy time for for the group in terms of, I suppose, cleaning its its own business up. Not not cleaning up, but making it greener. Yeah, in the same no, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So we we had um, a, we floated very successfully on the London Stock Exchange, and then um, um, six months later, the the uh, founder and largest shareholder of the business um, was uh, sanctioned by the uh, U.S. government. Um, not for anything specifically that they had done, but as a sort of rollout of a set of sanctions that they, that uh, were produced against Russia at that time. Um, and in order to uh, save the company, I had to basically remove him from the business um, and also, um, you know, remove his his uh, majority ownership. So there followed a very substantial restructuring, um, so that we now have a majority ownership of. Um, independent shareholders and trustees. 
Um, and we now have a fantastic independent board. So we have, I'm the only remaining member of the board that uh, brought the company to London three years ago. Um, but we have some really great um, independent non-executive uh, directors, um, some of which would be known to your listeners. Joan McNaughton, um, the uh, chair of the climate group and who's done amazing work over the years in clean energy. Um, it, she She's on our board and heads up our Health, Safety and Environment Committee. Um, and on the governance side, um, our senior independent director is a uh, an American called Chris Burnham. And uh, he uh, won his spurs. He was sent in by George Bush to the uh, junior to the United Nations after the oil for food corruption scandal in the early 2000s and to great um, plaudits did a fantastic job there. Um, and he now um, is our senior independent director. I won't bore you with the whole list, but let's just say we've got a really progressive, forward focused um, board now that are very supportive of my uh, clean green agenda. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've got a, a written piece on on the site, which I'll link through uh, 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 into the the article as podcast about that and the kind of the transformation from that point where the sanction was in place to to now, where essentially you know M M plus group is you know it's part of the UN Global Compact Initiative, which is obviously seeking to improve human rights, uh, labour, environment, anti corruption. Um, there's a new raft of CSR goals that stretch to 2025. Um, and there's a commitment to uh, develop science-based targets in line with the 1.5C um, trajectory and, and net zero operations by mid-century in line with that uh, advice from the IPCC. And, uh, you know, in, in a short time period, that's a huge transformation. How is, um, how is the green agenda, as, uh, as I suppose a wider um, term for what for everything that's going on there, been uh, received internally at the company? Uh, you obviously mentioned it's gone through quite an, uh, an overhaul, but for, for those that perhaps... Um, were there beforehand how, how have they kind of have they kind of embraced it welcome armed was it was it a bit confusing to them or was it simply like okay yeah no this makes sense because it's the right thing to do well it's a combination of all the above really i mean i think for some people they didn't quite understand the imperative and urgency of the climate agenda but appreciated the value of producing a non-polluting product um and under and were everyone's great believers in the potential of hydro uh, electricity, um, understanding that it's clean in the most obvious sense, but perhaps not quite appreciating the uh, invisible pollution that comes from carbon um, that it helps prevent. Um, and when I started, you know, expanding about the, the need to align the company with global climate goals and play a leadership role in our sector, I think people were happy to go along with it because it doesn't run counter to our you know being very honest it doesn't run counter to our bit own business interests but it wasn't perhaps seen as you know a defining goal but um you know in a relatively short period of time um it's become absolutely self-evident that as other companies have started to catch up um in or catch on rather than catch up um to the imperative of the decarbonization um, agenda. And as um, governments around the world have increasingly stepped up and made clear that this agenda is a non-negotiable direction for their economies, that actually, you know, I think people have found, you know, are very much on board. And also we have been working on some really exciting technology for a number of years that predates me. Um, something called inner anode technology, which actually would allow you to smelt a 
uh, aluminium that would actually be carbon negative, that would actually give off oxygen as part of as a byproduct of the smelting process. Um, and we're making good progress with, uh, with that. Um, it's still an R&D project, um, but we are um, increasingly excited about this. And when I, you know, this is something that, you know, I, I didn't change the direction of the company, but I perhaps have given greater emphasis and importance to some of the things that we do and have really supported those in the business who have also for some time seen the direction of our sector as being towards a low carbon future and hopefully a zero carbon future in the end. It sounds like it's it's sustainability as a as a as a core part of of the group strategy has, has evolved in a relatively short amount of time from a from a nice to have as you mentioned kind of aligned with the with the the business strategy to what is essentially an integral part of your plans for, yeah, I for think, growth moving forward. What do you think? Because um you know our audience they they probably a lot of them are probably in the position that that the group was prior where it's it's still viewed as a nice to have. What what's key to making it changing it from a, an add on to a, to a core part of a strategy? I think it is without blowing my own trumpet. Um, it's about leadership. I, don't, I think if you don't really live and breathe it at the top of the organisation, however good your sustainability manager, or however committed people are in certain parts of the group, if you don't actually have real buy-in and leadership from the top, it makes it very difficult because there are always difficult decisions to be made. And you, there are times when you have to challenge the way that things have are, have been done or are normally done. So you really just do need to be unremittingly um, um, aggressive, probably not the right word, but you have you, you know that you can't mess about if you're going to really make progress on this agenda. You, you know, we do have some quite difficult conversations where I really have to push push people into places and doing things that they're not particularly comfortable with or are very different to the way they've done things in in, um, in the past in order to make progress. Stretching targets, for example, um, stre you know, stretching um, and changing business plan. And, you know, in a, in a big corporate culture, change is never particularly comfortable. Um, but that's what we have to deliver. So I think, you know, I think you can't be half in on this agenda if you're really going to make progress, even for a, a company like this, we've a company like us, we've still got a lot to do. Um, and, you know, it's going to you know, not be a walk in the park to to get it done. We're going to have to really apply ourselves and make some tough choices in the in the years ahead. But I think it, it's a lot easier to make those choices when you see your peers also engaged in that if um, and now we are getting critical mass in terms of the number of companies uh in the economy who are addressing these issues and those who don't are, are starting to be the ones who stand out when i started on this mission we were exceptional because we were addressing this agenda now i think this exceptional ones would be those who you know are making a stand against getting in now whether we're doing enough whether other people are doing enough is quite a different issue but I think everyone's moving in that direction now. But the my sector as a whole, the aluminium sector, has been pretty sluggish and reluctant. Um, so it's been an interesting couple of years. Um, but certainly, you know, this time last year when I was calling for the London Metal Exchange to um, make uh, the carbon reporting of the content of their metals mandatory for aluminium, um, a lot of people thought that I was at best mildly eccentric or you know, a bit wacky. Um, uh, whereas now it's clear that the you know the 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 force is with us um, and it's coming. 
Yeah, that's great to hear. And um, I think the, the point really struck me was that, that, you know, change isn't always embraced by businesses, but um, I think every business this year has been forced into change uh, in terms of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and how that's impacted their uh, their ability to work, their ability to produce, to manufacture. However, it is, it's, you know, the coronavirus was, it was very much sector agnostic in how it, it kind of impacted uh, businesses. Um, you've already mentioned your kind of, you know, and being quite innovative in the R&D phase. And I think sustainability leads in general are, are kind of the ones that take a bit of a leap of faith. But we're in a very risk adverse time for a lot of businesses where financial, especially smaller ones and down the value chain, um, where a lot of um, financial strain means they they just, they are being risk adverse and sustainability and the green agenda can be viewed as a as a bit of a risk. Um, how, you know, how did how did the pandemic Im- impact the the long term and, and stretching aims that, that the group had just laid out? Or or did you find actually that it, it kind of helped strengthen the, the case for sustainability? Well, there's there are sort of two stages to this. I mean, certainly if we go back to the spring, mustn't forget just how um, very, very serious this looked. Um, you know, we're a global group. We're in uh, 12 different countries. We're on four continents. We employ over 100,000 people. Um, we're responsible for whole, you know, for whole communities um, in in player areas where we have substantial operations. So, number one, we've been trying to look after the, this year has been the welfare of our um, of our people, um, and it's and so, you know, we've been investing in uh, in hospitals, for example, in hospital buildings. And we had a hospital building program um, for COVID um, patients. We've been working with local communities on public health programs. Um, we've been, you know, um, taking taking the lead on, on uh, in, you know, public health, right the, you know, in all the places that we, that we operate. However, um, if you go back to April, you know, it wasn't at all clear what the financial outlook for this year was going to be. It looked very, very grim. The price of aluminium collapsed. Um, and not only was the price coming down, but in actual fact, you know, when um, the European uh, manufacturing sector went into lockdown, uh, a lot of our biggest customers, our, you know, Europe is our biggest market, um, particularly, as you mentioned earlier, like the automotive sector, for example, um, they just stopped buying product and we have these huge facilities that can't just turn off and on and it looked it and for a few weeks we were very concerned indeed now over the course of the year our business has proved to be uh, thanks to our people extraordinarily resilient and we've kept going and actually the price of aluminium has recovered very strongly um, towards the end of the year but there are so many businesses out there that aren't haven't been as fortunate um, as we have, um, who also faced that crunch point last spring, but haven't seen the recovery or don't have the resources to draw on that we've been able to, and it's very very difficult. Now we were, you know, I was saying, you know, way back, you know, in the spring that I think that in my view, the one of the long term impacts of this virus, once the virus itself was in retreat, was it would change people's approach to risk. And that, you know, for those companies that were able to think that far ahead um, and were able to survive and flourish, one of the things that would change would be their approach to systemic risk. And the greatest systemic risk out there um, in the long term it is dangerous man-made climate change. And I think 
what's happened with the virus is that a lot of businesses and investors and financiers, financiers haven't changed the way that they look at things so much as just pressed fast forward on a trend that perhaps most were expecting to be dealt with over the next decade. And I think climate action, instead of being something, yeah, we've got that penciled in for three years time, or we've got that penciled in for 2028, I think it's that it's had an an impact of collapsing the timeline, uh, which people want to make that serious, and to which we've got COP26. And thank goodness they were able to postpone COP26. Um, So we've now got a full year to run up to that. When I, and hopefully the world will be a little bit more back to normal in 2021 so that we can start all, you know, for the private sector, for governments, um, for civil society to all play their part in a really ambitious um, and productive outcome to COP26. I, and, I, and I think the way people have changed their view to risk and the, the willingness to talk about and, and deal with issues like climate change um, is different post-pandemic. Yeah, the, there's some great points in there, and um, I, I think the fast-forwarding aspect has, has definitely rung, rung true. And I think even even policy, which obviously in the UK as host of COP26, they've been so rightly gripped by the pandemic that um, obviously COP26 got pushed back, and and so did some of the strategies like the national infrastructure strategy, that the ten-point plan that's just comes out, even the na- uh, nationally determined contribution. And there's almost a silver lining with that postponement of COP26. It was obviously massively disappointing, but also extremely understandable. But if if it had to taken place um, this, in in 2020, there's a chance that you know China and the US might not have been at the table because they you know China's only just tabled its net zero target. Um, Joe Biden looks like has you know committed to a net zero target um, as and when he comes in. Um, so we, we've got you know the two largest polluters now. And also, one way or the other, hopefully Brexit will be sorted. Mm. And I think, you know, the UK dealing with, you know, COVID and Brexit, um, you know, I think hopefully next year there really will be the bandwidth to actually really focus on this vitally important uh, conference in Glasgow. So, yeah, touch wood. Um, I think it's a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I think I think they've done well to get out what they have with the ten point plan, the NIS, and even the the, the green summer uh, economic update, which was more of a, a jobs package than a green recovery package. But the the, the details are missing. But once they are freed up to do so, that'd be great. And I actually want to touch on on policy. I, I, you know, I want to think back to your days when you were um, when you were obviously at that deck and, and and in the government. You know. Did you ever, you know, did you ever envision then that, you know, the UK would be host to the summit, uh, a summit which could essentially, you know, this talks that this is going to be the Glasgow Agreement, a higher level of ambition than what was either delivered at the Paris Agreement. Did you ever think that, you know, the UK and, and its politicians would have the appetite to take that on and lead on that? Um, well, I encouraged them to. I was always nagging um, David Cameron to bid for a COP. And in the earlier part of the decade, that just wasn't on the agenda. Um, and obviously the French uh, hosted the pivotal 20, um, Paris. Um, but I certainly was then encouraging um, Anne Barad when, when she became um, uh, and the, uh, climate minister. And then uh, when uh, Claire Perry took over from her, um, when I had a, a, a chat with them, both of whom I know, know and respect uh, greatly, um, my strong advice was go get the COP. 
you know, it's up for grabs. This would be a great opportunity. And I think, you know, Britain wasn't perhaps the ideally placed um, in the in the early parts of the decade to host. Um, I think partly because there was a little bit of caution because we'd been such we'd gone in so and I'm very proud that we did. We went in so hard and fast on climate change early on. Don't forget, you know, when we passed there with full cross-party support, the Climate Change Act in uh, 2008, um, that was you know, a world groundbreaking piece of legislation and way ahead of its time, taking a, you know, we took a, a uh, unilateral legal obligation to reduce our, regardless of what happened at Paris or in Glasgow, to reduce our emissions by 80% by 2050, which Theresa May is now dialed up to 100%. Um, that's, it was a huge example. And we, you know, and then the, um, the policy infrastructure followed by the physical infrastructure that's gone in place in renewable energy has been a real triumph. But, um, you know, when I was um, a minister, I was having to make the argument for the for the investment and the expenditure on these things um, before we'd seen the yield. So it was the hard yards, you know, make you know defending higher electricity or seen to be higher electricity bills um, in order to ensure that we got that investment into offshore wind, got that investment into solar, etc. But uh, we've now seen that pay dividends in absolute spades. I mean the triumph of the offshore wind program is extraordinary i mean we really are um a superpower in uh, in clean energy now and, I, and i'm i'm very uh, proud of that um it's a it's a great legacy that will last for decades yeah no and and you know this this kind of iteration of the government is, is doubling down on, on offshore and has opened up the the contracts for difference to some some other technologies as well so it, it's great to see uh, on that and um I think I think the the criticisms we get of this current government from from green groups and and you know that's their that's their role to hold these policies account is that the, the details not quite lacking or for every two steps forward there is a step back whether it's the the Heathrow debate the roads twenty seven roads program I, I don't particularly want to get into that that now but was that was that um, did you feel that was the same when when you were the government that actually because you mentioned Claire Perry and I know she came out quite recently and said um, uh, quite quite honestly that it was hard to get climate change. Uh, as part of a joined up thinking across all departments and that's whether it's brexit or yeah. COVID. But did, did you feel that was the same when you were there uh yes i think it's always a struggle i mean there are always not just it's not just about the politicians it's also the machinery of government um you know it's the tre i mean how um the treasury were able to sign off the net zero ahead of everybody else i think how um is an extraordinary number that that showed real heft by number 10 because undoubtedly there would have been resistance um natural resistance to that happening um it's always you know being in government is it's difficult to get things done things don't just happen because you wake up one day and up with a good idea um you know there's a real process to getting things done i remember when um, I used to bang on about um, solar and decentralized energy when I came into office in 2010. And the permanent secretary used to giggle every time that I mentioned solar. Well, she's not giggling now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's, um, you know, it, it, so it is difficult. But what helps, I think you do have in Boris Johnson, actually, um, and I know Boris uh, a little, we came into Parliament at the same time in 2001. And actually, when I stood down as climate change minister, he was on the phone within a week asking me to come and chair the London Sustainable Development Commission for him while he was still mayor. So I did that for nearly two years under him as mayor. And 
although I didn't work closely with him, when I needed his support, I'd say, I'm only going to do this if, it, if we can have a real shake up. And said, yeah, yeah, Greg, that's what we want. Yeah. Um, you know, he did give that. I think he's temperamentally up for ambitious goals. He likes big ideas. Um, now, whether or not there is the follow through, um, I'm not, I know, I'm not there to say, but you know, but I, it's a good environment for ideas and, bi and big goals to flourish, I think. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, and I think you, you need that. I mean, you, you know, you touched on the, the Climate Change Act, which was world leading when it was set. Now we're essentially at a point where the the Climate Change Act is probably going to be, if the UK meets in Israel time, the Climate Change Act originally would have, that level, that 80% decarbonisation is probably going to be met in the mid 2030s. We're now pushing towards a net zero target. Even then, the agenda's changing now because it's not just about net zero. It's this green recovery from the pandemic. It's this it's this just transition to to a, a zero carbon thing. Um, and you know, there there might be cases where some of the policies or, or even some of the business strategies that have been implemented over the last 24 months, as we go into this trajectory, they might not they might need revamping again. Do, do you do you think? Um, you know, what, what What do you think needs to be part of, and I'll let you decide whether you want to take this from a business strategy or, or a policy aspect, but what do you think needs to be at the heart of strategies to reach net zero to ensure that actually the the suffering that's been caused by the pandemic and, you know, future crises on the horizon are, are accounted for? Oh, that's a big, <laughs> big question. Um, it, I think what we have to do is... It, exactly as you say, respect the fact there is no one answer to these questions and that we're going to have to remain flexible and nimble and react to developments as new technologies come online as they must if we're going to hit, meet these um, very stretching targets. Um, of course we're going to have to adapt and they will change the way that, that we work and, and literally do business. I don't think most people have really taken on board the huge difference between reaching for 20, so reaching for 80% reductions and going for net zero. This really is very, very substantial, not least because, you know, the last, you know, the last mile is definitely the hardest um, on this journey. And to get to net zero will require a huge amount of creativity as well as scientific endeavour. And I think we've also got to look at other solutions because just decarbonising the energy supply is not going to get, get you there. You're going to have to look at agriculture. You're going to have to look at um, a whole range of things which haven't, no, haven't um, historically or up till now been part of the main climate debate. We're also going to have to think about um, offsets in a, in a way that perhaps we haven't. I think offsets got um, discredited probably quite rightly um, early on in uh, in this century, sort of you know before even before we came into into government as greenwashing, and often they were. Often people would you know give a paltry amount of money to some you know do-gooding you know green scheme and use that as a result to just carry on exactly as they use that as an excuse to carry on exactly not change anything. Um, but now I think there are you know, nature-based solutions, which is going to be a theme of the um, COP26, do deserve a serious, serious consideration for those processes or those businesses or those activities that when you've done absolutely everything that science allows you to do to suppress carbon emissions, if there are still emissions there, you're going to have to find some way to offset those. Um, so 
I think I think um, nature based solutions, um, which also could have a additional benefit of um, supporting biodiversity, if, if done sensitively, um, are going to be part more part of the mix alongside technological development R&D. But I think that all sounds quite exciting. So these are challenges, but the solutions to these challenges are going to be very exciting indeed. Yeah, no, and I think the solutions will um, will emerge at a pace that we, we perhaps aren't have been ready for. I mean, carbon capture storage, the UK wants to, to make it ready by the kind of early 2020s. And, you know, you mentioned at the start that, you know, you, your group is, is part of a I suppose an early cohort that's you know R&D for carbon negative products um, uh, and there's there's a few companies you know you look at your Microsoft's your interfaces that are, that are, that are doing that as, as well and that's where um, I think the the game changes would be made and I think it's refreshing that we can have this conversation at, at the end of 2020 where we can look and say actually there is you know reason for optimism that, that these net zero targets are in place because it's been such a a tough year and it, it felt almost like the first domino started to fall um with the 10 point plan but even then away from that we've had you know news of, of vaccines coming out and that some resemblance to society is coming i think everyone's spirits are a little bit lifted which is um which is great and just in time for the festive um period as well um i, I, I did want to touch on, on on what your plans um are for the festive period are you going to be able to take kind of time to stock and, and reflect on the year or is it kind of all systems go at the uh, at the organization for you no well certainly i will be um at my house in sussex for the for the festive period um but um i won't be a huge break we've got a very busy um, 2021 and hopefully I'll be able to um, travel um, travel again but um, no I'm certainly I love Christmas I'm not a great fan of New Year but I love Christmas so I will certainly be enjoying a few days over the festive period in a Covid responsible way I say. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've been, I'm based in my office in uh, Sussex now, but it doesn't unfortunately doesn't look like there's any dangerous snow anytime soon. Which a, a white Christmas would be quite nice, uh, nice end to the year. But I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. It's going to, as I read, it's going to become increasingly rare. Thanks. To yeah. Well, I mean, there, there you go. <laughs> Climate change in full effect. Um, I, I I don't want to keep you much longer because um I know I know how busy you are, but um well, it's been a fascinating chat. I think we've covered a lot from a, a business perspective and a policy perspective as, as well. It's great to kind of pick your mind on where we are. And I'm sure we'll be able to pick a conversation up in six months' time. It'll probably be a completely different conversation as well of how quickly this uh, this moves. But um thank you for for your time today. Well, thank you, Matt, and, and uh, I love your podcast. And it's so great, as you say, after such a terrible, dreadful year to at least be able to end on a on a slight note of optimism so uh, happy new year yeah and to and to you too and of course to everyone that is uh, is listening um happy new to you and just this um just reminder that obviously the the sustainable business podcast will be in full swing in, in 2021 you can listen to it via the ed website via itunes or indeed uh, spotify you just have to search ed uh, or sustainable business covered and we're hoping to have more of these type of episodes these kind of one-to-one -one, uh, business interviews uh coming your way in 2021 but until then uh yeah um merry christmas happy new year and see you soon mm -hmm.